321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch, and your host for today. Today, we welcome Jules Pieri, co-founder and CEO of The Gromit, and author of the newly released How We Make Stuff Now. Jules is a relauncher herself. How We Make Stuff Now is a nuts and bolts guide to getting your product launched and building a business around it. Jules is also a longtime advisor to iRelaunch and someone I've long admired as an entrepreneur and as a person. Hi, Jules. Welcome to 321 iRelaunch. Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And as a way of starting, I want to know if you could give us the backstory as to why you wrote How We Make Stuff Now. Well, at the Gromit, we've been launching innovative products from small businesses for 10 years, 3,000 of them. And while many of them have gone on to be pretty uh, household names like Fitbit or SodaStream or Swell Water Bottles, many more of them probably could be if they understood some of the things um, that I wrote about in the book. And so it was... Um, it is an effort to help the next generation of makers be successful, to give them the skills and the confidence to pursue their business, to fill the gaps. In many cases, um, these entrepreneurs come out of the gate with several competencies pretty well in hand, and then there are a few huge gaps. So the book is actually meant to be quite snackable, that you could just read about the the area that you have questions about or that you're currently confronting. Yes. And I can attest to that having taken a deep dive into the book, the way it's structured, it's, it's, it's very snackable as you, as you say, and uh, practical and really kind of a how to guide. So uh, I, we're going to talk a little bit more about that content in a bit, but uh, can you set the stage for us and tell us a little bit about the early days of Gromit? I, I remember I read in the book that there was this prophetic moment in 2009 when you saw 3D printers in a design school and it was some sort of a, like a validation of, of, of what you were thinking about early on. Can you give us a little context there? Sure. So um, the Gromit is essentially like a curated marketplace for products you've never seen before and, and most likely would like to know about. And the big trick or art in starting a, any kind of marketplace is having the ability to attract both the people who have something to offer or sell, in this case, product, and the people who'd be interested. And I was really placing a bet on um, two things, that people would be interested in discovering these innovative products and that there'd be a rich supply of them. And the supply part, I had pretty good professional confidence about because I am an industrial designer and I've watched how products get developed my whole career. And I was seeing the mind-blowing um, capabilities being offered by the internet alone to figure out how to do things, whether it's find a manufacturer, do market research. Um, but there was still, um, and the other thing I was betting on is that people would be interested, but on the, on the supply side, would there be enough of these products? There still was that moment you mentioned that mattered to me because 
it wasn't just intellectual to me seeing the stats and the explosion of products. I walked into Savannah College of Art and Design and I went into the industrial design um, studios where there was a prototyping lab. And when you're a design student, you spend countless hours creating prototypes of your ideas. And in my um, era of industrial design, I became very good at all the tools in a wood shop and uh, learned how to use things like a vacuum form machine and a spray booth, like physically making prototypes um, for hours and hours and weeks on end. And in SCAD, I walked in and there were these 3D printers humming away, a huge row of them. And they were spitting out prototypes, student prototypes. And I asked about them. And the machines were all available for hire, essentially, for $15 an hour. And that just blew the top of my head off because I realized that these um, capabilities that were um, something I was sort of observing from a distance were very tangible and real, even at the student level. And that was kind of like a, a confirmation of what I had concluded um, in a, a very visual and visceral one. You, you know, in the book, you take the reader through uh, uh, 16 different competencies, and we're, we're going to talk about those in a little bit. But before that, you, you talk about this process of generating good ideas or design thinking. And I want to know if you can walk us through more in more detail what that's all about. Yeah, so um, what generally happens is um, when you're a designer or you're, or you're a, a, a hopeful entrepreneur, you land, you're given an assignment or you land on a problem that needs to be solved. And um, that the catalyst for that could be your personal experience. It could be somebody in your professional, personal life um, who has, has this challenge, or it could be you learn about a technology that could be applied somewhere and you're excited about possibilities in a new area. So the origin story for a, a product could be a whole different, a whole different set of circumstances. But um, since we launched the Fitbit, I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. What was really the origin story there was the interest in, in fitness is perennial and broad. So that wasn't something that had to be proven. And um, there, there was science around the benefits of um, movement and, and just sheer steps, like being active. But what changed in the world and what James Park, the founder, noticed was there were new cost-effective and very miniaturized sensors available. So something that had to maybe be a more clunky pedometer could be put into a much um, tighter form factor. So that's the opportunity right there. Whoa, this could be really interesting. People... Um, are carrying a computer around in their pocket with their phone. So take those sensors, take that computer and put it into a, a, a reimagined way of tracking fitness. So that's the opportunity. But in um, setting out to seize an opportunity, a good designer and a good entrepreneur will set some constraints and goals because you don't know if you're successful in your early concepts unless they have a chance of meeting some goals. So in the case of Fitbit, it would have been sensible to decide, hey, this thing has to be super lightweight, 
you know, fit in a pocket or wear it, something that's not going to interfere with activity. It probably needs to be water resistant because sweat could be involved. It has to work with a lot of different um, phones and with an application. And there probably was some price target um, set because it was not a, you know, even a, an ingenue entrepreneur would be sure that Fitbit wasn't viable at $1,000, say. So they probably set a reasonable price target. So there's some guesswork there. And then um, generally you move into this sort of iterative cycle of going from research to so figuring out technologies or manufacturing possibilities, say, in the case of Fitbit, figuring out how people like to exercise and get that kind of data. Um, and then ideating different concepts. The Fitbit could have been in a shoe. It could have been as it ended up on your wrist. It could have been in your pocket. It could have been a clip. It could have been a headband. It could have been a lot of different form factors. And, and the iteration that starts there is um, – going back and forth between having an idea and then prototyping it and getting feedback. And in the case of say a, a wristband, a prototype could be a strip of paper, like wrapped around a person's wrist saying, Hey, if we're about this size, how would that feel to you? If you were trying to wear this all day long, no matter what you were doing, um, you could take a piece of clay and model something that would go in a pocket. So prototypes don't have to be super in fact, should not be super formal or expensive or or sophisticated in the beginning because basically you're trying to get this idea that's living in your head or living in two dimensions on a on a drawing and having people interact with it in the case of a product. And you can find out things that you thought looked good on paper don't even look good to you when you try to interact with something three-dimensional. But when you give it to strangers, they're going to tell you the truth. And that's going to save a world of pain in terms of um, pursuing ideas that may not be viable. So that's that's the design thinking process of, of getting the ideas out in front of people in a very open-minded kind of way as quickly as possible. And how long does a process like that usually take? Um. I think if, like, let's say you decided tomorrow you want to pursue this idea, I'd say it'd be reasonable to um, have fair certainty of a route to pursue within a couple months. I would say the main constraint would be getting at the people who are the right people to give you feedback. One of, one of the makers in the book has a brilliant way to do this. This is like a pro tip that your listeners should steal if they have any interest. She has a product called the Buttery, which is an open uh, a butter to sit with a cover that you can leave out on the counter. And she had discovered that that was actually um, chemically and safe, food safety wise something that you can do, and just aesthetically and cleanliness wise, having a cover makes sense. So she she was interested in pursuing this product, but she knew that a lot of people wouldn't sort of understand you can leave butter on a counter, or they wouldn't believe it, or they might have questions. So she and her family, she lives in LA. Her name's um, Joelle Mertz. Joelle was going to, uh, on a family trip to Kentucky and she got to the airport two hours early in LA with a prototype and a survey about um, different options for the buttery. And she went from gate to gate with her prototype and her surveys, never revealing she was the founder. Mm. That's critical. Mm-hmm. Because nobody's going to tell your baby's beautiful. You want <laughs> right. them to 
think you're, you know, they want, she want people to think she was a paid, you know, hired hand researcher. And she just walked around with all these clipboards distributing these surveys and only talked to people in, in depth once they'd completed a survey. And it's a captive audience. People almost like we're asking to do the surveys because they're sitting there kind of bored waiting for their flights. And, and, and the, the population is very broad and it changes out every hour and every gate, right? There's a whole new crop of people. So Joelle now does this as a routine matter. She doesn't do it when she's go somewhere. She just buys the cheapest ticket she can get and, <laughs> and spends the day in LAX. Oh, that's great. So she buys the ticket just to get their security and then she's doing her research. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Um, and is part of the design thinking process like what materials you might be using or like trying to figure out, can we produce this in volume or is that like later on? Is that not really part of the design, the good ideas part? It is part of that process because um, you might have an idea that's not feasible from a production standpoint or a cost standpoint. So while you might test materials with people, a lot of what you describe would be happening more kind of behind the scenes where in that case, you're taking your your ideas to the pros, whether it's a contract factory or a manufacturing engineer or a mechanical engineer, trying to um, figure out if if your idea, you know, should should it go well at the prototype stage? Could it could it even be made? And um, one sort of pro tip about that is, you know, you have a business if you have been told that you can produce the product for one fifth of the ultimate price. That's a really good target for people. So a lot of times I find um, that people don't anticipate the cost of distribution, the cost of marketing a product, the cost of paying retailers um, or you know social media platforms their share or marketplaces their share of um, the business when they bring you customers. So they might produce a product, say, for $10 and think they can sell it for $20 because it's a 50% margin to themselves. But you can't sit in isolation and find anyone to buy that product. You need help and you have to pay the people or the platforms or the businesses that help you, whether it be an influencer, whether it be Facebook, whether it be Nordstrom. Um, so one-fifth is a really good rule of thumb, and it's a good thing to start figuring out very, very early on. Wow, that's a good one. I hope I'm just going to underscore. So you know your product is viable, or you might have a good sense, if you can produce the product at one-fifth of what you would ultimately price it at. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. And the pricing part, you might figure out, obviously, by doing straight up um, internet research, because if, if there's a product at all in the in the ballpark of the thing you're, you're looking to produce, you can find out pricing online. Um, if it's a completely revolutionary product, then um, it is, it is more of a guess about what the value is to people because what the value is to people is what the price should be. It's it, the price is not determined by your costs it's determined by what people are willing to pay. And so you might have to do some research there if you're doing something that nobody's seen before that you can't research on your own. And I find at the Gromit, that's an area we help um, makers a lot because they have not seen the volume of products in different categories that we've seen. And we can, almost without any research, look at something, understand its function and understand how it's made and who the customer would be and 
give a pretty good prediction of what the most viable price should be. So we help our makers with that. But, you know, for the vast majority, people wouldn't be in dialogue with us. Um, I'd start with the Internet. And secondly, if the Internet's not helpful, then do kind of what Joelle did. Like she, that was one of the things she was testing in the airport with Buttery was, would you buy this at twenty nine ninety nine? Would you buy this at thirty five ninety nine? Or, or you more open ended? What price would you pay? Is another way to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to digress for a minute, would a factor like it's all made in the USA versus having it be made, you know, you know, uh, outside the country, be a a reason to price it at more premium level and you know that has something to do completely separately with the functionality of the product yeah that's a great question Um, when we started the grama 10 years ago that was not as hot an issue as it is today and and it's been a hot issue for about i'd say seven years consumers cared a lot even 10 years ago when we started but our makers were not as savvy on the benefits of producing in the USA, um, the customer, you know, the, the, the customer desirability benefits that this is something people are looking for. So you can have a premium price in the US. You will lose some customers for sure, because I would say our own community probably divides half and half, like all things being equal. Most of our American customers probably would say they'd like things made in the USA, but not all are willing to pay for it. So you will lose some customers for that premium pricing, but there are a lot that will be um, will double down on your product because that matters a lot to them. And I will say there's one other like kind of weird thing that happens around that that topic. Flashpoint country is is only China, uh, and it's strange because if a product's made in Vietnam or made in France or made in Canada, people don't react nearly as strongly as they do to made in China. And it's a complicated issue. I think there there might be a little underlying racism in that um, reaction on the part of some people, frankly. But the other thing that people don't understand and why I say it's complicated is that there are a lot of um, capabilities that have been developed in a very sophisticated way in China to produce certain kinds of products that we cannot make in the U.S. anymore. And China has really invested in innovation. So I think some of the negative reaction has to do with the the very real issue of copycats and counterfeit products from China. That's that's real. But I don't think the story gets told in the U.S. of the innovation that happens in, in China. And and it's not all about um, lower cost of labor because that gap is closing. It's often about them having invested in really advanced manufacturing capabilities where you may be able to get a better product in certain categories than you can in the U.S. So that discussion is very product dependent and what the technology or materials are, what the assembly costs might be. There are a lot of factors that go into where is the best place to make a product. But when you're a customer, what I love is you're in the driver's seat. If made in the USA matters the most to you, then that's what you should buy. And in the on the grommet, we we have filters, so you can filter by where something's made. You can filter by the nature of the entrepreneur, whether it's an underrepresented entrepreneur like a veteran or a person of color. So you can, you know, we kind of 
put your your own desires sort of front and center in sorting out these products. And when we work with makers, that's one of the first things we figure out is, well, what are the values behind this con- company that um, that our community's already expressed interest in? Wow, that's that's super interesting. For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to 321 iRelaunch, and this is your host, Carol Fishman-Cohen. I'm speaking with Jules Pieri, co-founder and CEO of The Gromit and author of the newly released How We Make Stuff Now. Jules, you have a statistic in the book that only 10% of Gromit makers have professional experience in the area where they end up building a product. And this means that most makers are career transitioners. And I want to know, were you surprised to to learn that? Or is that something that you saw all the time and so you weren't surprised at all? I was surprised. Yeah, I I was very surprised. 10% is is so low. And, you know, I kind of could feel it along through the years. But then when we did the research and studied it, it was stark, you know, a very stark number. And um, I think that should give your listeners confidence, frankly. I, I find that super inspiring that somebody is one day a teacher or a plumber or a dentist, and then um, they're suddenly making something that has no relationship to their professional life or it's or it has a bridge from their professional life into a whole new category. Um, like I know we have this hot iron holster, which is a lot of people when they use um, hair styling tools, especially flat irons, they've got this problem of being able to put it down. Yeah. You know, it's hot. And this holster has, it, it, it like imagine it's sort of L shaped with like a gun holster almost. And it, it, um, it's silicon and it sticks to the surface of your vanity or counter and then hangs over the edge to hold the tool. And an ER nurse came up with that. She she must have seen something that happened, you know, in her professional life with the use of silicon or the way you could suspend something, you know, using the, the grip of the material. And there she is making something that's really more about her personal life and her teenage daughters who are, you know, leaving these hot, these flat irons on counters. Yes, we have a stain on our carpet that was a burn from a hot iron from from my daughter. So <laughs> Whoa, you need this. <laughs> Could use that product. Um, well, that that's actually very good news for our relauncher audience because so many of us have stepped back and during our career break, and I, I you can probably relate to this directly yourself. You know, you have this opportunity to reflect on what you had done before and you're in this whole different context. So, you know, you're seeing problems that need to be solved. And I'm guessing that's where a lot of these ideas come from. And it's just encouraging to know that people are successful in making a new product without having extensive background originally. Yeah, the game's really changed. I mean, that that would not have been possible 30 or 40 years ago, or maybe even less than that, because, I mean, because the internet, I think, is the most basic answer yeah. for that. That um, I was I was just yesterday touring a company, a local company called Form Labs, which makes 3D printers. And the CEO, founder, this is his first job, is it was creating a company. And, and he said, you know, I think people overestimate how much you have to sort of travel around finding the experts because with the internet, they've already published all their best stuff. Yeah. You know, he figured I had to build a 550 person company by reading other people's best stuff online and whether it's YouTube videos 
or you know, using SurveyMonkey for market research or Quora for asking questions. There are so many great resources that with just a little bit of tenacity, you can answer 90% of your questions and then use the final 10% of your time to actually talk to people. Because I do think that it, that does matter. Ultimately, you need to do that. But you can you can bat away the easy questions on your own. Wow, great advice. I hope everyone was taking notes there on, on those sources. Um, Jules, the book is structured around 16 competencies for success. Can you pick out a few to highlight for us? You know what? I I feel a um, kind of a, a, a public kind of a burden, I guess, to make sure people are aware of the things that we see most often not well addressed. So I'm going to jump to like the don't screw up competencies because okay. um, um, others might be a little more approachable. So first of all, um, here's a really basic thing. And I covered this under the chapter on marketing. But one of the most important decisions you make in setting up a company is, is what you call it. And most of our makers name their company after their first product. And my advice is name your company after your whole vision. So let me give you an example. We have a, a glasses cleaning tool that um, little tiny tool that people absolutely love um, called Peeps. It's a, it's a little pincer with a carbon fiber pad on both sides of the pincer, and it's po- it's pocket sized. And the company is not called Peeps; it's called Carbon Clean because the entrepreneur Daniel Patton's vision was to use this particular technology, these carbon fibers, to essentially help us clean devices in general, eyeglasses. And then he has a second very successful product called SmartClear, which is for phones and tablets. So if he named the company Peeps, which makes a heck of a lot of sense for a glasses cleaning product, it might not have translated so well to SmartClear, which is what is sold in phone stores. And so he thought about his vision first as opposed to just the first product. And and the reason why that matters is, um, A, it gives you more flexibility, but B, as hard as it is to create a single product, retailers, and 90% of retail is still physical, bricks and mortar, are going to be so much more enthusiastic about your product if you have a line of products. It's super hard to get a single product placed at retail, like one single single item. Think about yourself. You're walking down, you know, the aisles or you're walking in a boutique and something that's tiny that, you know, just has one color, it's it's kind of going to get lost, right? So if there's a line of products, think about like Method and the, the cleaning products, Method. That company, first of all, they didn't name it like, you know, hand wash company. They named it Method. And they imagined the um, facing in a grocery store or a Target of a whole line of beautifully packaged, colorful products. That's easy to envision, obviously, with cleaning products. But I would ask people when they're naming their company to think about what that line could look like in whatever their intended retail should be. It, it Even online, it matters to have more of a presence. So number one, name the company correctly. Um, against uh, after your vision number two protect your intellectual property and that means your trademarks like your company name your logo and then if you have any 
potential for utility design, functional patents, go after them as soon as possible um, because they, in, in the world of especially Amazon, they are the only way you can have a hope of defending yourself against um, the copycats and counterfeiters, which do show up quickly when a product succeeds. And one of the ways to defend your IP, frankly, is to not sell on Amazon because it's like putting a neon light, you know, to show your product that it exists. So I would, you know, it's a whole other topic, but assuming a, a maker does want to ultimately sell on Amazon, that IP protection is gold to them mm-hmm. um, as soon as possible. And then um, maybe my third area is more about when you're actually setting out to create the company. I I have a bias here that if you are looking to create a company that's not a lifestyle side hustle, but really want you want it to be your your full time endeavor and employ other people, then try really hard to find something with a large target market, like a problem or an area that involves a lot of people and ideally a problem or an area that they care a lot about. Like it's, it's not a nice to have, but a must have. The glasses cleaning example is a good one because anyone with sunglasses, reading glasses, regular glasses has to clean them. This is, this is a big area of interest, you know, or need at least for people. Um, and I find sometimes people go after something that's small and it's going to take just as much work as something that's big and it kind of breaks my heart. Like I want, I want them to go after something that's gonna be worth the time and effort with a lot of potential customers and hopefully a high need on the part of those customers. Well, that's a great introduction to the 16 competencies. I, I wanna ask you, Jules, about some other details that you mentioned in the book. Uh, for example, the role of packaging. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's kind of cool being here at Gromit. We get 300 products ideas a week that we look at and we actually engage with 20 to 30 companies a week like literally you know hello we'd like to potentially um, feature your product can we have a sample we start testing it and is this funny like insider thing that um you wouldn't realize from the outside some of the the newest products that come in here and sometimes they're the best products show up with no packaging. They come in like wrapped in brown paper or they're in a Ziploc bag because it's so new that packaging has not yet been cracked. And that, unless it's a like it has to be a gift product, that's actually not hor- horrible if you never intend to sell in physical retail. You can get away with pretty minimal packaging for online sales and you can probably bridge you know, for whatever period of time until you're ready for physical retail with something pretty substandard. We don't judge that with that. Like that's fine with us. But the minute you want to be in physical retail, which I would expect most products do uh, need to get there, then packaging becomes the whole game because um, you can't assume that busy people in a store can stand next to your product and explain it. And you're not going to be there. So, the packaging has to tell the whole story and it has to work within about three seconds, maybe less. So it's, it's kind of the discipline I would recommend is imagine what you would put, you know, if you're playing Pictionary, 
trying to describe your product and you could only have a picture and I guess I'd give you a couple words, um, what would you put? Because that's all the time you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And don't, um, don't assume that, especially on the face of the packaging, that you can cram a whole lot there. So anything that makes it you know, more visible with a cutout or something that shows, demonstrates how it's, if it's a product that morphs, like while you're using it, something changes. If you show the couple of changes in the physical form of the product or a use case of how it's being used, it will go a long way um, to helping that product um, get itself understood as quickly as possible. And I I will say, People, uh, our makers are rarely happy with their package, but it's a, one of the less expensive places to, to change. It's much more expensive to change a product than a package. So I find there's a lot of iteration in the packaging area and they get smarter when they deal with retailers because retailers have biases and real constraints and great experience to share. So sometimes you almost have to be out in the wild to know what the wild is like. Wow. It just seems so daunting to create that packaging that is going to catch people's eyes and eye and communicate in three seconds. And I'm guessing, you know, not use a lot of excess material and take up a small amount of space on the shelf. It it feels like a lot of factors that may be way beyond uh, people's control and, and understanding and separate from the product. So do people usually uh, consult experts on packaging or do they end up yeah. doing it themselves? No, they. Uh, I, I, I say three routes. One is they do it themselves. Um, a, a lot of factories, especially overseas, bundle packaging costs into their price to you and that they have designers. You can start there. I wouldn't stay there because my um, impression of those packages is that they're fairly rushed without a lot of market understanding. So I don't think you get the best design, but you're, if you're paying for printing and producing a packaging, I would take the third route, which is find a designer who understands packaging mm-hmm. because your factory won't mind receiving art from you and having better art. Um, they're just doing it as a service to give you design services. But you want somebody who's going to take the time to understand what really matters on your in your product. And I wouldn't leave that to a stranger. I would leave that. I would only do that with somebody I could talk to directly and um, and also get their input mm-hmm. because they know more about packaging than I do. So, you know, I'm an, I, you know, I'm a, I'm an industrial designer. And so, you know, it's like being a hammer and everything's a nail. I don't like seeing people cut corners on design because I find it usually costs more money than it's worth because it, it doesn't, it costs the same amount of money to produce an effective product or package as it does to produce a bad package. The only delta is whether you consulted somebody to get it set on the right course and it's worth that investment. Right. Well, you know, we're running out of time, so I, I have so many more questions to ask you, but I'm I'm just going to ask you um, a couple more. One of them is, you know, you're talking about factories and I'm just thinking about that whole concept of producing at scale and how people figure that out. So are, can you make just some brief comments on that? Well, I would say a lot of people do actually start in the USA. There's a huge benefit to um, being able to see your factory, understand the processes. When you're innovating the product, you understand how it's made better. Shipping costs are lower. Um, so 
the majority of our makers do try to start in the USA and sometimes they can scale in the USA and sometimes they can't um, because of largely because of costs, I would say. Um, but the, the, this part of the process actually, Carol, is one of the, it's one of the most interesting and maybe in some ways less daunting parts of the project because when you're looking to produce a product, you're a customer to a factory. They will talk to you. And, and you know, you're not sort of big borrowing and stealing like maybe when you're trying to raise money or hire employers or get a designer to do work for less than their full rate. Mm-hmm. A factory wants your business and, and they want to educate you. They want you to be a good client. So, and I also find makers love to share their experiences because it's pretty rare that you know, they're competing with each other over a factory. Um, so if you find a product that's has some of the same materials or processes or assemblies that is similar to yours, you can usually get to the maker to tell you, well, how did you make that? And you get up the learning curve so fast here between those two parties, makers and manufacturers. You don't need to be a manufacturing expert, but, you know, they're very happy to talk to you. So, I would say more, more, you know, more daunting is making sure you're working on the right product. You're making sure that there's a market for your product. That's where I would be worried. Like that's where you should be scared. Right. But getting the product produced, the experts are there and they're just at the other end of a phone. Got it. Okay. So Jules, we have to wrap up and I have one final question I'd like to ask you. It's, it's, it's the question we ask all of our podcast guests. And I wanted to know if you can tell our audience what is your top piece of advice, even if it's something that we already talked about today. For relaunchers. Correct. Um, I would say one of the, the biggest um, you know, issues is sort of getting your story straight when you're ready to, to make a career change or get back into the game. And I've always found it helpful to first meet with the people who knew me in that constant context, my professional context. Could be people who knew you in grad school or undergrad as well. Um, but but I, I would always practice with the people that I thought um, understood my capabilities, but would also be honest with me when I was trying to imagine speaking to a potential employer or future colleague. I practiced on friendly, knowledgeable honest faces. So not my girlfriends, Mm -hmm. like not my neighbors. I mean, people really knew me. Um, But they would sometimes almost remind me of my place in the world, like what kind of position I had, you know, in the team we were on or the role I played. And, and, And they don't necessarily tell you that when you're actually at the company, but you've left and you're reflecting back and and sometimes they can be way more succinct about explaining your skills and capabilities than you can yourself. And, and I always love that. That's so helpful. Great, great advice. Jules, how can people find out more about the book, how we make stuff now, and also about the grommet? Um, the internet, I would say, is the best thing. Um, we, we have a website for the book. Uh, it's the same title as, or same URL as the title of the book, How We Make Stuff Now. Honestly, if you just Google my last name, Pierre, and book, it'll show up. And then the grommet is is um, that's the same title as the as the website URL. 
So you can find um, the actual products from the case studies in the book on our website uh, with the full, you know, video story and a lot more, you know, context than, than could fit in a book. Wonderful. Jules, thanks for joining us today. I'm so glad to talk to you, Carol. This was fun. Yeah, it was fun for me too. Thanks for listening to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co founder of I Relaunch, and your host. For more information on I Relaunch, go to irelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.